Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. We are in the midst now of a Freestyle Friday. Great to have you here as always. If you want to call in, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. So it happened today, the big sit-down, the uh, highly anticipated chat between President Trump and President Vladimir Putin. And uh, they were staring each other down. Oh, there we go. That's right. Just, just you can just picture now all the uh, Soviet soldiers marching across Red Square. At, uh, the, the, there we go. So you, you get a sense of uh, how the media set this whole thing up. It, it, it's a new Cold War as far as the media is concerned. Not because uh, of anything other than Hillary losing the election. They were pretty much okay with what happened in Ukraine while Obama was in office, the seizure of Crimea. Yeah, there were some sanctions. Uh, They didn't make too much noise about Russian intervention in Syria that involved a lot of uh, bombing of civilian areas of Syria as part of assistance to the Assad regime. The client, uh, a client regime or close, close buddy of of Russia's, uh, but now of course Russia is uh, America's number one enemy, if you believe the media. And the responses to a meeting. Let's just be clear about this: the only people in the room for this meeting, uh, in this face to face, were Trump, Putin, Tillerson, Lavrov, the two, the Secretary of uh, State and the Foreign Minister of Russia. Uh, respectively, and some translators. That's it. And sure enough, after this meeting happens, and you can tell, by the way, when you read the analysis of this, some of it was clearly written before the meeting even happened, right? They just, oh, Putin showed what an amateur Trump is. Well, what are you basing that on, sir? I can just tell. But you don't even know what was said in the meeting. Eh, I don't have to know what was said in the meeting. I figure it out. I, I, I have a sense about these things uh writeth the pundits so that's uh w- one debate that uh popped up right after this whole thing happened today uh had to do with the following um this is from cnn trump opened the session by raising the concerns of the american people regarding russian interference in the 2016 election u.s secretary of state rex tillerson said in an off-camera briefing uh, after the meeting Russia asked for proof and evidence it was involved, which the U.S. did not produce in the meeting. Uh, In fact, we have some of uh, what Secretary of State Tillerson said himself. The president opened the meeting uh, with President Putin by raising the concerns of the American people regarding Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, They had a very robust and lengthy exchange on the subject. Uh, The president pressed 
President Putin on more than one occasion regarding Russian involvement. Uh, President Putin denied such involvement, uh, as I think he has in the past. Now, Lavrov spoke on camera, of course, he was speaking in Russian. The translation of it uh, that was reported is that President Trump said he's heard Putin's very clear statements that this is not true and that the Russian government didn't interfere in the elections and that he accepts these statements. That's all. And so now, of course, the way the way the media treats this, uh, not all of it, but much of it, um, the way that uh, CNN is is reporting on this, for example, dispute begins after talk ends. That that's the big takeaway. Not for CNN that a an agreement which could lead to a political settlement of the Syrian conflict uh, was put into play today. I'll tell you more details of that. But no, the dispute a dispute begins after the talk ends, and they got a big photo of Trump and Putin looking at each other. Um, by the way, this is what uh, this is a, a little snippet of their meeting. President Putin and I have been discussing various things and i think it's going very well we've had some very very good talks uh, we're going to have a talk now and we look forward to a lot of very positive things happening for russia for the united states and for everybody concerned and it's an honor to be with you i mean that was the the overall tone and that was what was presented both before and after you've got two world leaders sitting down for uh, for quite quite a while having a, a talk and people are just inferring whatever they want from this. <laughs> the, the big takeaway is the dispute. How is it a dispute when when Lavrov is saying that Trump accepts these statements? What's he going to do? I, I would like to ask the, the pundits and the journalists out there who think that Trump somehow let uh, Putin off easy in this meeting, which keep in mind, we, we don't even know what was said. We just have the foreign minister of russia saying what his interpretation of events uh were and you have secretary of state tillerson giving a quick readout of what was said in the meeting and they, they touched on ukraine cybersecurity, syria and yes they opened up with reports about the election interference but i would just want to ask the folks over at the various newspapers and uh news outlets news programs on TV, what they think was supposed to happen here. How was this supposed to go down exactly? Trump goes, well, you know, you're, you're a big you're a big liar, Putin, and, and you're just, you're the worst. What do they think he's going to do? Of course, Lavrov says Trump accepts these statements. Uh, what's the alternative? They're, they're going to get into a fight? Do we want to see them rip off their shirts and arm wrestle? Is this going to be like a, the WWF gif that was so famous earlier in the week? Of course not, right? So I just want to know what the expectations are from the media here. What do they really think was going to happen? They sat down. They talked about some stuff. It was not uh, re reported specifically what they said. But now, of course, we're told that there's a dispute. And you've got people that are writing all these opinion pieces because it's a Friday and they figure, well, you know, they got to write something about this writing all these opinion pieces on what their takeaways are from this, when, when in reality, they don't know. And there's not any major dispute here. Um, I, I, I would still, like I was saying, I would like to know how how would the the best U.S. president imaginable, how, how would liberals, okay, how about this one? How would uh, Barack Obama respond if he were the one sitting down right now at this point in time with Vladimir Putin? 
Well, we know what he said to Medvedev not long ago. You know, after my election, I'll have more flexibility. And Medvedev was like, I think you'll transmit this to Vladimir. And we were all just supposed to think that that was fine, right? I mean, that was Obama saying, I got to present one thing to the American people so I can get reelected. But don't worry. Once I fool enough of them on my foreign policy positions, then I can change things around. That, that, that's all that is. That, that's what he's saying. You know, he's saying, I, I've got to play politics here at home. I've got to, got to, got to you know, trick some, some fools into uh, thinking that I'm more real politique than I am, more focused on uh, allies and enemies in foreign policy than I am, whatever the case may be. He's just saying it's a, it's a head fake, right? He's, he was fooling people. Said it to Medvedev on that. People always say hot mic, but they really mean live mic. A hot mic would be like there's distortion on it, and so it's a live mic. But, it, you know, it's a good rule. All, all, all mics are always live. It's a rule to live by, especially as we all carry microphones around in our pockets all the time. So I don't know what they expected from this meeting. You know, all these expectations. You got the G20 happening. And, and Trump also met with uh, Pe- Enrique Peña Nieto, the uh, president of Mexico. There's, there's some other major uh, sit-downs that happen on the sidelines. Uh, we'll get into also, by the way, over the course of the show, I've got a whole bunch of things. We'll talk about the hunt for leakers that's uh, underway. Uh, we'll discuss the G20, the crazy protests there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, some immigration stories that I want to bring to your or an immigration story in particular that I want to bring to your attention that also looks at the way prosecutors offices treat illegal aliens. So a lot of ground. To, and I've got some fun guests joining later on in the show. Uh, those will be surprises for you. Uh, but. You know, a lot of ground to cover, but this is the main story of the day that Putin, Trump sit down and the whole G20 and all this stuff. And you, you've got, you know, Angela Merkel, who's just like, guten tag, everyone. It's Angela. I'm here to make sure that all of your children behave. And uh, Angela's getting everyone together. Did she give some opening opening comments here? No, I thought I had some opening comments from Angela Merkel. But, oh, there's a lot. Of, oh, here we go. The uh, the Merkel handshake. I, I want this is this is what CNN was focusing on today. Let's play this. For- you mentioned the awkward moments, Jeff. I mean, it is notable that the body language this time, the pictures are up right now. They note uh, better, different than perhaps we had seen in the initial meetings between the president and the German chancellor. Do you get the sense that the White House was preparing for this? Cares about the optics of the meeting between these two leaders? We've seen several. Um, sort of handshakes go awry. Uh, the one that was sort of the worst between these two leaders came in the Oval Office. Right. Uh, I am told that she initiated the handshake by a pool reporter in the room uh, that she initiated this handshake here. So, yes, optics always matter in this case. I think we probably make more of them now mm-hmm. in the age of social media than we used to. You know, Jeff, we just saw the video again. We all can confirm that, yes, she did seem to initiate the handshake. Her hand went right. out first. Outreach, physical, literal outreach. From but Germany we, to the United but States. We are in her, they they her have they have adult journalists on TV that are, that are doing a a amateur body language analysis for us in real time. There, you know. So so tell us uh, what's what's really going on there with that headshake. Is that uh, is that headshake show that there's been a change in uh, the White House's feelings towards Merkel, or is this really Merkel pushing this one? I can tell you what's going on here. And Merkel's all like, Donald, your handshake is very strong. It's a it's a vigorous handshake. It's very nice to see you. Auf Wiedersehen. So like, you know, these are world leaders. They're, they're shaking hands. I, I don't know what else to say about it. But this is uh, this is getting into the this the silly part of the news cycle when you have people that 
are analyzing a conversation that they really know nothing about, that are trying to create controversy controversy by saying there's some big dispute as to what was said in the meeting, and also by somehow manufacturing expectations in the public or trying to among Democrats and Trump haters that Trump didn't do enough or he he went he went soft on Putin in this meeting and there was he, he somehow failed you know there's a a level of of ineptitude or inadequacy for Trump's foreign policy vis-a-vis Putin that's not based in anything that we know from the meeting just you know cuz hashtag Trump I mean I, I don't know what else to say they just want to find reasons to to criticize even when there's nothing there and this is not new but with Trump it reaches new heights. I mean, this is beyond anything we've ever seen before. Uh, But there was one aspect of the the sit-down of the meeting that was, uh, I'm sure, worthwhile. And we have additional reporting on the subject, and that is the uh, state of play right now, circumstances on the ground in Syria, and the Russia-U.S. relationship and possible coordination for de-escalating the Syrian civil war. So why don't we spend uh, a bit of time? We'll talk about that when we come back after the break, and uh, I'm going to maybe get into some action movie quotes. We'll talk about G20 protesters. What are they protesting? Who knows? Oh, Bill de Blasio, New York City's mayor, was hanging out with the protesters. Also going to hit that. So we've got a lot of show, my friends. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. So Sally Yates was the uh, acting attorney general, you will recall, and uh, she refused to do her job, so she got fired. Um, and now, of course, she's a hero. To the, as I said, she would be. And I, I want to know what the what the book advance is now for Yates, for standing up to Trump, for being—she was part of the resistance, right? She was a government employee and said, I'm not going to do my job because I don't—I work for the executive branch, but I'm not going to do that. Oh, and by the way— Uh, Does anyone want to just take a step back and and look at the fact that she, as acting attorney general, refused uh, to enforce any part of the travel ban? And now the Supreme Court has already overturned the stay on the ban from lower courts because they think it on the merits looks like at least some parts of the travel ban are completely constitutional. So Sally Yates, apparently not great at the whole Constitution reading thing, which is not good for somebody who's the acting attorney general or was. But now, of course, hero, hashtag resistance. And this is why I always tell you, we need more oversight of prosecutors. Prosecutors have way, they are the most powerful figures, the least accountable figures in the United States government by far. Federal prosecutors do all kinds of stuff. And if they, if they decide that they want to make your life miserable, your life is miserable. You're done. And they'll probably bankrupt you even if you've done nothing wrong and destroy your reputation. And hopefully you don't get caught up in just the gears of the investigation and, you know, get thrown in prison, even though you've never committed a crime, but they think that you've obstructed or you lied or whatever. Right. So that's what you're dealing with, with federal prosecution. There's a reason why uh, over 90 percent of uh, federal prosecutions end in plea bargains, because the system is stacked against you. Once the federal prosecutor comes after you, you're in big trouble. Okay, Uh, but back to Ms. Yates here on Twitter. Uh, this is what she put out today, which, of course, makes her a hero to the resistance. By the way, we, we will get to the Syria deal and what's going on in Syria and the national security components of, of everything in, in, just a, in just a moment. So, so stay with me. I, I know I said I'd hit that and I have not changed. I will not, I will not uh, forget. Um, she tweeted out, POTUS' inexplicable refusal to confirm Russian election interference insults career intel pros and hinders our ability to prevent in the few in future uh okay 
First of all, he said that he thinks it's Russia, but, you know, he's not he, – he leaves – he's leaving open the possibility that maybe somebody else was involved. Now, does he know anyone else is involved? Does, has he pre- present, prevented – or, I'm sorry, uh, presented – not prevented – presented any evidence that somebody else was involved? No. But he's essentially saying, look, uh, yeah, I think Russia was involved, but maybe other people were involved too. You know, He's also trying to move past this. And by the way, is he really supposed to uh, box himself in before he's sitting down with the president of Russia by making a statement that will obviously further antagonize relations with Russia, which are already at a particularly low point right now? Is, is that really the expectation? Let me put it to you another way. Is that smart diplomacy? Is that wise? Is that sound? Uh, But this is now what we're being told by the former acting attorney general, somebody who was at one point the senior most law enforcement official in the United States. And she's, I mean, clearly people say, oh, she's a career respected, clearly a partisan. Right. I mean, now we've known that all along, but couldn't be any more obvious. I mean, this is you better get ready. The next Democrat administration, all of a sudden Sally Yates being talked about as a possible, you know, Secretary of State or head of the FBI or, you know, attorney general, uh, actual attorney general. Uh, So but that's one part of this. The other part of it that I find interesting is how does Trump let's say that Trump said, "Okay, I'm 100 percent sure I'm 100 percent sure it's Russia. And by the way, when you're talking about intelligence assessments, there's always there's always some degree. Right. There's always some possibility uh, remember, we're talking about an assessment, not a fact, an assessment. There's always some possibility that you're off. That's just the nature of, of the business, something that I, I happen to know about, having been in the intelligence business. There's always the possibility that you're wrong. Um, but her whole in, insults career intel pros, um, no, no, it doesn't. Intelligence professionals should not have the hubris to think that they are infallible and always right. And especially when we get into the realm of, you know, tracking, cyber, Russia. I mean, this is complex stuff that honestly, very few people even have access to the to the real facts here and very few people understand them. So you add that into it all, but that that it hinders our ability to stop this in the future. I would like Sally Yates to defend that. I, I would like someone to uh, to offer to debate her on this point. How does it make it harder for us to stop this in the future? Trump says, yeah, I think it's Russia. I'm not 100%, but I think it's Russia. Okay. So what does that do that makes it more difficult for us to stop Russia from hacking, what, Podesta and the DNC's email accounts? It's just, she's just feeding red meat to the left-wing base here. That's all this is. Or feeding, you know, soy-glazed tofu to the left-wing base here. That's all this is. There's There's no rationale behind this. How does it make it harder to prevent this in the future? Why? Because, oh, we won't have the political will? You know, at some point, we have to ask the Democrats. We can play the game they used to play with when Obama was in office when it came to Iran. What do you want to do, go to war with Iran? Well, you know, given their rhetoric on Russia, I think it's fair to ask them the question. Well, what do you want to do because of the election meddling? You want to go to war with Russia over this? I really don't think so. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. I am not entertained! The Buck is back. President Trump and President Putin uh, met this afternoon for two hours and 15 minutes uh, here on the sidelines of the G20. They discussed 
important progress that was made in Syria. A ceasefire has been entered into, uh, and I think this is our first indication of the U.S. and Russia uh, being able to work together in Syria. And as a result of that, we had a very uh, lengthy discussion regarding other areas in Syria that we can continue to work together on to de-escalate uh, the areas and the violence once we defeat ISIS. That would seem to be the real news from today, the most important news item, not whether Angela Merkel uh, took two or three seconds to shake Trump's hand, not the duration of the meeting as some indication uh, of whether Trump and Putin are getting along or maybe they're just trying to have a chat about the Russia collusion and how how they can they can hide it after the fact. I mean, you know, the, the media has lost so much credibility at this point that I can't really put in terms of analysis. I can't put anything uh, past them or, or outside the, the boundaries of, of what we could expect. Uh, I, I did see some analysis that well, because the meeting went so long, clearly Putin got the better of Trump. I don't even know what that means. Uh, ha, ha, what? I can't even get there trying to take the perspective of the other side. That's how poor, that's how shoddy much of the uh, left uh, press and uh, progressive media analysis of everything that Trump and his administration does has become. I can't even make their—usually when people are are rational and sane, I I can make their argument— even if I disagree with it, I understand what the argument is. With Trump, it's just, it's just, I hate Trump. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I mean, that's all that they, that's what it all comes down to. They just hate him. Arr, roar. It's rage. It's, it's a, it's really a sickness. It's, it's pathological. Right? It's a pathological hatred of Trump. And that informs or rather distorts much of their, judgment uh, on everything that's going on but the the main item here the important thing that we should be spending more time thinking about and if we're going to talk foreign policy and g20 and by the way as i said to you the press loves all this stuff because they get to talk about you know oh they, they get to be like well this foreign leader and that foreign leader and you know aren't you impressed with how many foreign leaders i can name off the top of my head I mean, it's how much of this what does the g20 really do what does it mean oh yeah the eu and japan are working on some trade agreement i mean there's a few things that are are noteworthy i suppose but overall i mean it sounds pretty boring you know it sounds like being at a big uh i don't know big insurance conference somewhere i mean it just doesn't sound that exciting to me no offense insurance agents i just mean you know it's not not exactly lighting the world on fire uh but the press reports on it like it's you know all of a sudden this is churchill and and fdr and and stalin sitting down to divide up the world again. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. That's not what happened. But on Syria, here is, here is the takeaway. Here's what we need to, uh, to understand going forward for the conflict. Uh, the, this is from the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. and Russia agreed Friday on a ceasefire in a violent corner of Syria in a limited deal that officials said was designed to show the two powers are able to find ways to cooperate The agreement to secure a halt to fighting in southwest Syria came as Russia's President Vladimir Putin and President Donald Trump met for the first time in Germany. If the deal is successful, it will be the first time Moscow and Washington succeeded in implementing a ceasefire together in Syria. So this is a big deal. Um, It's starting off relatively small. It's just one part of Syria where you have uh, Assad forces backed by Russia anti-Assad forces backed by the United States that are in close proximity to each other. In the past, 
we've had efforts with Russia to make sure there's deconfliction. Essentially, we're not going to blow up uh, a place where we think there could be Russians, and the Russians aren't going to blow up a place where they think there can be Americans. But now the U.S. has also shown a willingness to defend uh, on the ground our proxy force uh, our proxy forces, even if it means attacking the Assad regime. So that's that is an escalation, and things have heated up as a result of that. So now we're reaching out. We've got this agreement with Russia and uh, Russia and Jordan, and Jordan, of course, being a neighbor of Syria, that is uh, very much affected by this whole conflict, uh, largely by the refugee crisis. I've mentioned it before. I, I went to the refugee camps in Jordan on the Syrian border some. Uh, I don't know, a few years ago now, two or three, three years ago. Uh, but that was, when I was there, I think it was the fourth largest city in Jordan was a refugee camp. So that tells you something about the size. It was over 100,000 people. And uh, the, the Jordanians are also part of our anti-ISIS efforts. And so the Jordanians are also playing a, a role here in helping to mediate and, and broker uh, the ceasefire. Um, so the U.S. and Russia have agreed to this. And uh, that goes into effect shortly. If it works, it could be the beginning of further efforts to create uh, safe zones, um, to create areas where the conflict stops. And I think the idea here would be that you, while the, while the anti-ISIS fight is going on, this would allow for the prevention of spillover conflict or really just escalation of the conflict, which would be Assad's forces in Syria with Russian backing and Russian air power up against the forces that we are backing on the ground, uh, the the predominantly Kurdish militia and uh, the Syrian uh, anti-regime uh, forces that are on the ground. We, we don't want them to start fighting because what happens? Are we going to start shooting Russian planes out of the sky? Are Russians going to shoot a U.S. plane out of the sky? You can imagine how bad that can get. So we, this is supposed to be a means of preventing uh, this conflict from spiraling into something much, much worse. Uh, now, will the ceasefire hold? Uh, will it lead to more of these safe zones? Is it really likely that this could be the beginning of much uh, more constructive relationship, a much more constructive relationship between the U.S. and Russia? We'll have to see. But this is among the most important agenda items that Trump and Putin could be discussing. They clearly talked about this today. This has been in the works for a while. It was time to coincide with this meeting and as much as all the Trump haters are going to want to say that this is evidence of Trump's soft spot for Putin, uh, if they pull this off, if, pull, if Tillerson and Trump are able to get the Russians to just be less destructive in Syria and also prevent this from getting much worse, as I said, by having Assad forces against the forces that we're backing and all the possibilities for uh, miscalculation and escalation that are a part of that. It would be a, a, a real di diplomatic win. You know, th this was a, likely a very constructive and positive meeting today from all, I think, all fair-minded accounts it was. Comes after the president gave a very good speech in Warsaw, despite the people that were saying, oh, it's, he, was, he was giving, a, it was like a dog whistle to white nationalism. I'm like, wow, talking about Western civilization is now, is now white nationalism? I, I don't even know. Sometimes, sometimes the crazy is so overwhelming that you're just you're 
kind of frozen for a second by it. You're like, what? This is what people who are paid to think and write and speak are saying about Western civilization now, that it's a, it's really a code word for white nationalism. Whew, man, we, we got a lot of work to do in the school system in this country. Um, anyway, so the, the Syria ceasefire was an important item, and Secretary of State Tillerson uh, said as much. Our position continues to be that we see no long-term role for the Assad family or the Assad regime. We just, and we have made this clear uh, to everyone, we've certainly made it clear in our discussions with Russia uh, that we do not think Syria can achieve international recognition in the future, even if they work through a successful political process. Uh, the international community simply is not going to accept a Syria led by the Assad regime. And so if Syria is to be accepted and, and have a, a, a secure, uh, both secure and economic future, uh, it really requires that they find new leadership. Now, let me just keep it, keep it real here. Uh, the international community, and in, led by the U.S. in many cases, rejects, refuses to accept a whole bunch of things, right? International community refuses to accept North Korea. And yet North Korea still stands. And the regime, the uh, psychopathic crime family, mafia state of the uh, Kim regime in North Korea continues on. We don't accept it. International community completely condemns it. It's a pariah state, but yet it continues on. Uh, any number of problems you could point to around the world where you say, well, the international community says no, but yeah, guess what? doesn't really change all that much, does it? So while I think Tillerson is telling the truth that we may not accept an Assad-led uh, Assad Syria, if we are able to slow down the violence and, and uh, eliminate the Islamic State's control of territory and then uh, have some provisional security authority in place in, places like, in, in uh, cities like Raqqa and elsewhere in Syria, and the civil war is pretty much coming to a, a halt in terms of the violence. What leverage do we really think we're going to have to get Assad to go then? How is that going to happen? So I, I just want to tell you, I do not see a future while the administration's official position may be. By the way, it was the position of the Clinton administration openly that, that Saddam Hussein shouldn't be the, the leader of Iraq. It wasn't until Bush came along that that actually changed, right? But... That was the Clinton position was, you know, Saddam Hussein is, is, is illegitimate. He shouldn't be the leader of Iraq. OK. And we had all the sanctions regime and, you know, oil for food. And you remember the 90s. Uh, none of that mattered, really, in terms of who ran Iraq until we finally went in there with force. We're not going to do that in Syria. We're not about to roll into Syria. I don't think it's ever going to happen, at least not in my life. Well, not in the next decade or so. Uh, we're, we're not going to roll into Syria and tell Assad that he's got to go. And short of that, how do you force him to go? You, you exert pressure on Russia? How much pressure are we going to put on Russia to get them to tell Assad that he's got to be all done? Uh, what are we going to do there? Think about how much they've already placed their bets on Assad. You, you think they want to be part? Now, along the way, they're going to say, sure, we, we want a political settlement, we want to be constructive, but the, the imminent primary concern is to get the conflict to stop, to get people to stop dying. A half a million people have died in Syria. So if the Trump administration is able to work with the Russians to have there be less violence in Syria and more stability in parts of Syria and the beginning, the piecemeal creation of, if not 
a piece, at least a stalemate. You think we're going to upset the apple cart after after achieving that by saying, yeah, and by the way, Assad, you got to go. Hmm. I I would. Then this is probably this is, you know, a, a ways out. I mean, I'm, I'm looking now a year or two out, but I just I, I want to go on the record now and say I, I do not see a future based on everything that's happening in Syria. Assad's in a much better position now than he was a few years ago. The civil war has been going on for six years, everyone. Uh, Assad is is in a better position now than he was uh, during the latter phase of the Obama's second Obama administration's second term by a lot. He's got the Iranians backing him, the Russians backing him. Why is he going to go? As far as Assad's concerned, I know he's a you know he's also a, a mass murdering lunatic who's dropped. Well, I should lunatic. I mean, he's actually acting rationally from his perspective. He's just a bloodthirsty, cold blooded dude. Uh, but he's dropping gas on his own people. He's doing all this stuff. But he views himself and those around him as uh, defending his country from, from jihadist maniacs. And and if the jihadist maniacs are done, guess what? That's a huge victory for Assad and the Alawite regime and the, you know, the Alawites that support him. And, you know, we're not going to go in there and say, sorry, you got to go now. I mean, we might say it, but we're not going to do anything about it. So, nonetheless... A big diplom a big diplomatic step in the right direction if we if we can have Russia not necessarily be constructive in Syria, just less destructive. And today that was put in motion. And it was put in motion by the Trump administration, which will get minimal credit from the press, if any, for this. And it, it may be saving lives, everyone. That's right. Trump, Tillerson, their policy, what they've been doing since coming into office, may be saving lives in Syria starting very soon and maybe the beginning of the end of that civil war. But do you think anyone's going to be talking about it or writing about it that way? Nope. Let's just talk more about a Trump tweet and how he's so brash or whatever. All right. Uh, quick break here. Much more coming. Stay with me. You know, I feel like there should be some camaraderie between uh, me and Joe Scarborough, although he doesn't know who I am and I've never met him. But I'm just saying, you know, because we're guys with uh, side swoop hair, although he's kind of he like makes it go high up in the air these days. Uh, and and pro- I'm sure the guy likes boat shoes. So do I, you know. So uh, and we're both at least ostensibly Republicans. I, don't, I mean, Joe is kind of like not really Republican, but he is like a little he's a little conservative. Uh, but he's one of these guys now that has, as you know, this feud running with Trump and everything. And uh, that also, I think, has extended into his feeling about the rest of the, the media uh, on the right in general. And uh, he says stuff. He says stuff like this. President Trump, Vladimir Putin talking about fake news in the deep state, as well as, unfortunately, some right wing commentators who have aligned themselves with Vladimir Putin. So, um you don't have to go to uh, Hamburg to hear what Vladimir Putin is saying. You can just tune into some shows on uh, certain cable news channels and hear it late at night. Uh, saying the same thing about fake news in the deep state. It is strange. really, very strange, really strange bizarre time. that some people time. on the far right Dangerous have now aligned time. themselves with Russia. People on the far right have aligned themselves with Russia. I mean, it is bizarre, people. You know, I was out in Nantucket recently and. We were on the veranda, you know, drinking a a, a, a south side, and uh, you know, it was uh, just just appalling what I'm hearing about Trump and all that stuff. So, you know, there you have it. Um, 
Joe, Morning Joe, saying that they're. Uh, by the way, I think we all know who he's talking about. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and uh, and and insert words in Morning Joe's mouth, uh, but I think we all know who he's talking about. And yeah, you know, he he likes to take this uh, this line now that the that the right is aligned with Putin. That's there's a difference between saying that you don't believe the nonsense from CNN, and, and I wonder when people will start to apologize. By the way, for all of the uh, unfounded allegations, all the retracted stories, and also the the vitriol directed at those of us who just sit around, we're sitting around saying, "Okay, look, if you really think that Trump colluded with Russia, present some evidence." Just because Putin says something doesn't make it wrong. And I feel like that has to be said at this point in time. Just because um, Vladimir Putin is uh, not someone to be trusted, it doesn't mean that on, on every issue uh, he's someone that we can't work with. Uh, and by the way, I mean, the Obama administration was running around not just bowing and, and apologizing, but also reaching out to the Iranians— to Cuba, I mean, regimes that have uh, done nothing but stick their thumb in our eye for a long time. And, you know, you didn't see the media complaining about that, did you? But, you know, oh, no, everything now with Putin. Uh, Scarborough, others all saying that there, that there are right-wing commentators who are aligned with Putin. And I just think that this this uh, slander needs to stop. No, it's not that people are aligned with Putin. It's that they don't believe I mean, maybe there's some who are, but, you know, that's not what the predominant— For those who are Trump defenders in the media, the, the theme that they're running with is not, well, Putin's great, we love what he does. It's just Putin didn't throw the election, and Trump and Putin weren't colluding, okay? That doesn't make Trump Putin's best friend. Let's talk about the G20 riots. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. The G20 in Hamburg, everyone. Oh, yes. It is fantastic. Wunderbar. The G20. But there's been some problems. There have been protesters who are very, very naughty. They're lighting things on fire. They're throwing the bottles. They're being very bad. And it makes me upset. And I want to shed the tears. Because I don't like this. If we're going to be protesting like the climate change and the other very bad things out there, you need to do this like civilized. You know, you can't be like running around all, oh, I'm so crazy. Look at what I'm doing. I'm, I'm breaking the, the windshield and, and uh, you know, oh, this is not good. So you have the noise and the fires and the craziness. Here, here's some audio, everybody, of what's been going on at the G20. Some guy yelling, all right. Shame on you. That's all I heard. He said, Shame on you. Why are you so, you're so terrible? All your world leaders, you're sitting around, you're having these discussions about the problems of the world. Why don't you fix the problems, world leader? I'm going to go out now and kick in a, in a window of a Starbucks to protest globalism. So I, I figured, okay, uh, you know, let's be fair. It's easy to just be like, get a job, hippie, uh, you know, and talk about how these people don't know what they're doing and everything else. And, and I get it. Um, but, and, and I do some of that, of course, because it's fun. But 
That all said, uh, I, I wanted to dive a little deeper into what this all last last night was like the welcome to hell march or yesterday was the welcome to hell march. And they're always saying, just like we always hear with these protests, oh, well, a vast, ma a vast majority of the protesters are peaceful. Well, a vast majority of them are peaceful. So I, I wanted to try to to dig a little bit into, well, what what are, what are these people protesting? I've seen anti-capitalist protesters, anti-globalist protesters. So I went to the BBC, uh, and they had a piece up. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, the BBC, which is left-wing, right, uh, funded by the British government, but it's left-wing because, you know, that's just the way it goes. And they have a piece up, uh, G20 in Hamburg, Hamburg uh, who are the protesters? And... What's fascinating is you, you read this piece, and you don't get an answer to the question, really, who are the protesters? You read the piece, and you're like, all right, well, what are they, uh, what are they protesting about? You know, and there's, there's a section on how this isn't about Trump entirely, which is a fair point. Uh, because back in London in 2009, Toronto 2010, those G20 summits, that was during the Obama presidency, not Trump. People were protesting all this. And they were there was this, this there's always this group, as I say, the black block, which is a tactic, not an actual protest group. But they, they show up at these things and it's really a lifestyle like it, it's it's a cultural thing. Now, these uh, these protests that pop up, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or the uh, the G20 protests, World Trade Organization protests or just uh, what, what was the oh the uh, the big the, the pipeline protesters uh, the people who were protesting uh, stand what was it Standing Rock pipeline it, you know it turns into a, a kind of a, a self righteous party you know celebrities stop in there's a lot of drum circles and music and, and literally I mean Occupy Wall Street you go down there and everyone just say hey man like it's all sit around and sing songs and it's like like, Ben Bernanke, like, why are you, like, making all this printing of money, man? It's, like, not cool. And I would ask them. I would ask the Occupy Wall Street protesters, and, you know, I'm sure it's the, the same thing with what you'd get if you were to ask some of these G20 protesters, including those who are, I mean, they're lighting cars on fire, and they're they're squaring off against riot police. You ask them what they're all about, and you get all these different answers, and, and you say to yourself, well, don't you think that maybe di dilution of your message is kind of a problem? If you have a protest movement with a hundred different reasons for the protest, do you really think you're going to bring about any change? And that brings me back to this is just it's a uh, it's it's really a recreational activity for these people. And whether it's here or in Europe, uh, this is just and social media allows for this to be even more fun because now and for them i mean i don't think this stuff is fun and certainly the cops are getting hit with bricks and molotov cocktails I don't think it's fun but for them it's uh, there's there's kind of the excitement and the and the camaraderie uh that comes with you know squaring off against the man you know the fascist police here uh, wherever wherever they are you know the fascist forces of of law and order um social media allows them to congregate more easily so you can have a, a meetup of, you know, it's like, hey, like, who wants to get together and get upset about, like, you know, nuclear weapons and free Palestine and uh, climate change and uh, save the whales and, you know, all. And, and you just you can list it all. And everybody who wants to get in on that action, including the anarchists who, you know, what are they all about? I don't know. I don't think they know either. They don't like police, though. I'll tell you that. I've noticed that with the anarchists. Not, not into uh, respecting 
uh, of police work. Um, but they can all gather together. And then, of course, there's the magnifying effect of their actions or, or the, the perception magnifying effect of social media that they live stream this stuff. I mean, you can see it, right? So, you know, whether you're in America and they're like, hey, check us out, you're gonna, or, or you know, you're in one of these European protests, they're all like, oh, you know, it's like I'm like set of all the, you know, the, the, the fat cat globalists, you know what I mean? And they're like, they're like refusing to denuclearize and it's, it's imperialism, uh, right? And it's, you know, all this other stuff. Wherever you are, it's kind of the same just mishmash of uh, always leftist causes. You'll notice this. There's there's not a lot of people who riot who are like, hey, I'd like smaller government, lower taxes, and less burdensome regulation. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't seem to happen anywhere. Uh, you don't get a lot of that. You always get people that want the, that are. It's the same thing, the same self righteous and really unattainable causes. You know, people will protest and they'll get out there the G20. They're just protesting global inequality. What does that even What does that even mean? Uh, there'll always be global inequality. There'll always be inequality of different kinds, uh, and that's not something that's ever going to go away. So, what are they really? You know, a, a protest you would think should be about getting some change to come about. It should be a raising awareness at some level. It should be. Oh gosh, I just said raising awareness. That's not good. Because raising awareness is, is now a catch-all on the left. Anytime they do something and they there's no real rationale for it other than they just want attention, they say they're raising awareness. Um, but it's really, uh, the more I th I've thought about it, the G20 and, and all the stuff going on there, uh, it's social justice socializing. Uh, it's a way for leftists to meet each other, to hang out, and to feel like they're part of some unending struggle against the fascist forces of, I, I, I don't know what, international governments or something. Um, what's always interesting to me is, is they usually want stronger uh, international regulations, right? They, they want a stronger climate change accord. They, they want the forces of globalism in some ways to be much stronger than they are, but they protest globalism and the oppression and the inequities that it causes. I, I don't know. So, yeah, it's social justice, socializing, or you could say maybe even it's— uh, these G20 protests and all the stuff that goes along with it, it's like social justice, social events, right? That's, that's I think, the most—a uh, a, a much more apt way to describe it. Because like I said, I was through the BBC, and I'm like, well, what are they, what are they really protesting? Here's one. Uh, a woman who's with an environmental group from Germany told Reuters, quote, We know that the people who cause the misery that we have all over the world today, refugees, wars, and so on— they are sitting right now in the G20 and having a chat. Uh-huh. I mean, that, that's... Is it possible to have a more simplistic and and uh, un, unhelpful view of the world than just, yeah, because there are governments that are talking. We just want to talk about how there are problems in the world, so let's protest. I mean, it's incoherent. It really is. But leftism these days always devolves into incoherence. It's just a question of... You know, when, how far you push it. Um, oh, wait, we got uh, Bill de Blasio. We got to talk about that. The, the mayor of New York City. Oh, this is fun. We're going to hit it on the other side of the break, team. Uh, oh, wait, but also, before I go, it is Action Movie Quote Friday, everyone. I forgot. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Let's go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action Movie Quote Friday.
Fridays. Bring it. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Your thoughts on this or your action movie quotes, all very much welcome. We're going to hit a quick break here, team. We'll be back in a few. Protests have gotten pretty out of hand. I'm seeing here that uh, uh, over there's reports of over 100 police have been uh, injured there. And you, of course, want to ask the question, injured for, for what? I've been going over how there's really no cause, how this is more of a, a uh, an activity, a lifestyle choice, a uh, a virtue, an exercise in virtue signaling and social justice socializing, uh, that there's really no outcome that's supposed to happen or could happen from this that benefits anyone, um, but it's it's acting out. It is really a collective tantrum by collectivists. It is uh, leftists who are deciding to pose as anarchists for the day. Um, and people are, are hurt. I mean, their cops are getting hurt dealing with this. And sure enough, and I'm here in New York City, and we've had all kinds of problems recently with our mass transportation system, which I know for those of you who don't live here, you're like, well, Buck, I don't, that's not my problem. Fair enough. Um, but it's without it, the, the city is paralyzed. I mean, you, you need uh, mass transit here to get around. And we've had all kinds of problems, and our mayor who it should be noted it was a close confidant of uh, Hillary Clinton's for a long time. I think he ran her Senate campaign, in fact. Bill de Blasio, whom I believe, along with Governor Mario Cuomo— Oh, wait, is it Mario? No, it's—no, uh, which Cuomo is it? Yeah, Chris Cuomo is the CNN guy, and then there's—is uh, it Mario Cuomo, or am I forgetting? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, whatever. Governor Cuomo uh, have aspirations to go— uh, on to perhaps even the highest office of the land, believe it or not. Um, I think that's uh, I think that's in the cards perhaps for both Governor Cuomo and, in his own mind, Bill de Blasio, that they, that they would make Andrew Cuomo, sorry, Mario, yeah, that's what I thought, Mario was his dad. See? Polit- political office in this country is unfortunately far too much a hereditary uh, hereditary commodity. It just gets passed down to people, Right. Cuomo's, Kennedy's, Clinton's, you know, everyone's everyone's just going to vote for these people because of their last name. And I'm sure at the state political level, it's even it's even worse. But um, anyway, yeah, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, so he may run for the president at some point. But OK, Buck, back on track. Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, largest city in the country. The city's got lots of problems and he is. Over in Germany, over in Hamburg, hanging out with protesters. And I just want to know, who in New York City votes for this guy? I mean, I live here. And it's the question that I also ask about, like, who votes for Nancy Pelosi? I mean, who are the people that feel good casting votes for these clowns? I I don't—I mean, they certainly don't tell me. I guess they—the people who know me know well enough to not uh, inflict their their political uh, nonsense on me. Uh, But— I don't understand. And by the way, Kai, uh, War- <laughs> Bill de Blasio's name, it's interesting he's in Germany at these uh, G20 protests. Bill de Blasio's name is um, originally Kaiser, uh, not Kaiser Wilhelm, Warren Wilhelm. That was his, uh, that was his original name. Uh, he changed his name, and that's why I have said for many, for, uh, many years now, that we should call him Kaiser Wilhelm. 
Kaiser Wilhelm because I think I'm pretty sure he changed he changed his name uh, because he realized that it's much more effective to run for the political office in New York City if your name is, you know, hey, Bill de Blasio, hey, hey, Bill de Blasio, didn't he grow up in the Bronx? As opposed to, my name is Warren Wilhelm. Yeah, look, there's nothing wrong with the name Wilhelm, but, you know, it just wasn't, just didn't have the ring that he wanted to it, you know, so he decided to go with uh, Bill de Blasio. Yeah, but now he's, and I saw a New York Post columnist. I've been calling him Kaiser Wilhelm for a long time. I saw a New York Post columnist write these Kaiser Wilhelm, so I'm happy that it's it's caught on. Because, you know, he's the Kaiser, and he's over there, and he's like with all the protesters. And what is this guy doing over there? So, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like this is now, uh, this, this shows you that pol- the Democrat politicians in this country by and large, just always have sympathy for protesters, right? Because of the, I don't know, the uh, this is this is when I start making generalizations that I get in trouble with. But, you know, because of the whiny emotionalism that is so prevalent in the Democrat Party these days, I mean, maybe, I don't know, is that why? Uh, and, and so they view protesters as a, as a necessary outgrowth of Democrat ideology? Maybe. Um, I'm not really sure why they always take they always seem to take the side of protesters. Protest as a uh, generally speaking, protest in the modern American or the contemporary American context is so much uh, more dominated by leftists. Isn't that interesting? And I know people are probably making jokes themselves right now about how that's you know that's because like conservatives actually have you know families they have to tend to and jobs to get to and everything else, but. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of union, uh, a lot of union organization of protests, and unions tend to go Democrat. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, look, a lot of people. I remember uh, seeing in an Occupy Wall Street protest a a uh, Columbia University professor that I knew, and I was just like, "What is she doing here?" You know, I mean, so yeah, there are people that that get involved in this protest movement stuff. But with Bill De Blasio right now over in uh, Germany and the G20 protests going on there. And remember, he's he's not over there to, like, meet with world leaders. He's over there to hang out with the protesters. You know, I mean, he's he's pulling a, uh, you know, a, uh, what is it? I'm trying to think of people that, like, Michael Moore, uh, I think, I'm trying to think of who else went to the Occupy Wall Street protests to hang out with them. I feel like Sean Penn probably did, or we know he was going out and hanging out with, uh, like, South American uh, dictators, um, you know, Chavez and, uh, so, you know, he, he's over there. And in the meantime, people have pointed out that, you know, we just had and, you know, t- making a, a serious turn here in our conversation for a moment. We just had a, a member of the NYPD assassinated by a cop hater here in town. And, uh, you know, a mother of three uh, officer, Maya Sotis Familia. I spoke about her earlier on in the week. That just happened. And the NYPD is 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 rocked by that, and understandably so. And they don't. The, the police department does not have a a strong relationship with Bill de Bla, with Mayor De Blasio. And he just decides that he's going to take up and go over and hang out with some protesters in Germany because of what? Because of climate change. I mean, this is a reflection of a larger liberal mentality, folks. Uh, this is you know, Bill De Blasio thinks that because he's a fan of of Bloombergian bike lanes in the city or something that he's single-handedly responsible for combating climate change or something. I, I don't even... Again, they're so detached from reality that it becomes difficult to make their arguments, right? They're, they're so full of 
nonsense. And I'm like, what exactly is the point he's trying to make here? And given the bad relationship that the mayor has with the largest police department in the country and that a police officer was assassinated earlier this week, it just seems particularly tone deaf right now for a, a mayor to decide to just get up and go hang out with a bunch of protesters. But, you know, this is, you see this with Democrats. Right? Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, honeymooned in the Soviet Union. Uh, you have Bill de Blasio. Did he honey? Uh, I think he, did he honeymoon in Nicaragua? I think he honeymooned in Nicaragua. Uh, so just a fondness for leftists all over the world is a, a common a common theme of of Democrats, uh, very senior Democrats in this country, right? Wherever they are, all over the world, the uh, the leftists who want to you know seize and redistribute the wealth and. And eventually destroy individual rights and property and law and order. Anyway, uh, they they just find that to be enticing for whatever reason. You know, whether it's Sanders or um, Bill de Blasio or any number of other. I mean, we could sit here and just talk with Democrat politicians who cozy up to uh, leftist uh, dictators and leftist uh, revolutionary movements for any number of reasons. Um, but yeah, Bill de Blasio, he's... Uh, not my not my favorite, and it's for even for the city of New York, which obviously has the politics of, I don't know, it's New York is almost not a part of America in terms of its politics. It's so left wing that uh, you can't even really put it on the on the American political spectrum in a lot of ways. Um, but people are finally taking notice of this, and uh, it's just I think uh, indicative of broader problems in the Democratic Party of you know they'd they'd rather go and hang out with protesters somewhere else and talk about climate change and feel like they're so righteous and smug instead of doing what they're being paid to do and take care of problems here at home. Real problems that real people have. Uh, We've got a lot more, team, back in just a few. Buck is back. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. An avalanche of national security leagues. That's how a recent Republican-authored Senate report describes what has been a a clear pattern of uh, sharing sensitive information, uh, classified information, assuming that the information is true, of course, reportedly classified information, Uh, in the media, and this is different, this is distinct from what we've seen with previous administrations. Uh, The 24-page report is called State Secrets, How an Avalanche of Media Leaks is Harming National Security. The report says that the series of leaks since Trump took office are, quote, unprecedented and uh, potentially damaging. Now, it's a very interesting discussion when you get into leaks of national security information because there is a nuance that is required here. There, is, there are gray areas, right? First of all, who is authorized to disclose the media and who is not? That's an interesting debate in and of itself. Of course, the president can disclose whatever he wants, but what about the president telling another senior official that that person is allowed to disclose information? You know, If the president tells the, uh, the director of national intelligence, the DNI, that he is allowed to tell the media the following, but, you know, off the record or rather uh, requesting anonymity as a source. Is that a leak? But that's apart from the real thrust of this discussion or of this report, 
which is that these are leaks that are specifically intended to harm the administration. So forget about whether the president is talking, whether the president is allowing people in his administration to speak to the press. Uh, this is a, a, an issue of the media trying to use information that it gets from people within government who have classified access to try and hurt this president, to try to hurt this administration. And what's really troubling here is that there doesn't seem to be much care at all given by some of these news outlets to um, the damage that is done to national security that affects all Americans, never mind just the damage that's done to perceptions of Donald Trump or, or his administration. Um, and I, I think that what we see is, is clearly an orchestrated campaign among members of the media to uh, reach out to people that they know who will give them information that is damaging about uh, Trump. And, you know, according to this report on Fox News, the Senate report said 78 of the leaks concerned the probe into Russian election meddling and potential collusion with the Trump campaign in the 2016 presidential election, revealing intelligence community intercepts, FBI interviews and intelligence, grand jury subpoenas and the workings of a secret surveillance court. So so the leaks are, are these are not whistleblower leaks is what I'm trying to say. These are not leaks that they're identifying of government wrongdoing that the government was trying to cover up by saying, oh, no, that's classified. That does happen sometimes. And, you know, there's a there's a moral, ethical and legal judgment that needs to be taken into account when there is true whistleblowing, uh, when there is a real act of uh, letting the American people know what they what must be known, what should be known. Um, but for people that are just trying to even a score with Trump or that are trying to uh, make the administration look bad and in the process taking actions that are damaging to our national security, uh, there needs to be accountability. Um, we, we've seen that there have been ill effects already of, of this leaking on the willingness of, uh, foreign, of uh, foreign intelligence partners uh, to trust us. At least there's been news reports about that. There are concerns that information that they share may end up in the press. Uh, there are concerns about the morale of the intelligence community itself as a result of this activity, because what happens is a politicization, a politicization of the very uh, functions of the intel community overall. When you feel like you're under scrutiny uh, and I, look, I, I worked in the intelligence community. I worked at the CIA, as you know. And when there's a sense that people who are probably very senior, who are either current or recently departed from government, are, are using their access to information to play politics, to settle partisan scores, uh, that undermines the really good work and the important work that the intelligence community is doing day in and day out. And these are executive branch agencies. Uh, they do, in fact, work for the president of the United States. Now, the president of the United States and the intelligence community work for the American people, well aware of that, but there needs to be some respect for the chain of command here, and it's obviously damaging to the relationship between the commander-in-chief and the various of the 17 intelligence agencies out there, the relationship with all of them, uh, when there's a lack of trust. That is also unfair, by the way, for those who are just doing their jobs and who are not engaging in these partisan games, who are not endangering national security 
in order to uh, tell their their buddies at the New York Times, the Washington Post, unflattering things about the Trump administration. So I I, I have to say I, I understand the desire for a crackdown on uh, on these leaks. I do think that except in egregious and clear-cut cases, uh, criminal prosecution should be considered the the last resort, meaning that for a lot of people, if the leak is not something that's really damaging national security, but it's something that violates the trust that's placed in them by the administration or by their role in government, uh, firing, uh, suspension of clearance, you know, there are there are intermediary steps that should be considered. And I, and I know right now people just want there to be um, leakers to just get to get crushed because of all the politics surrounding this. But, you know, we, we don't want to be in a situation where the administration is grabbing lower level people. This is always my concern and trying to make an example of them for what sometimes could be uh, understandable, uh, mistaken or even innocent conduct that put in a certain light looks questionable. Right. So, you know, it's, it's usually the little people here in the leak hunt game. It's usually the little people who are crushed. And the senior folks who are the ones playing the politics, uh, they get away with this. Uh, they have the savvy and the political connections and also the cover from the media uh, to avoid real consequences uh, for their activities. So I, I, I like to caution people about this because I know right now the, the passions are running high over this. And, and they should because some of the stuff that I've been reading in the newspaper is all I can think to myself is, well, if that's true, who the heck thinks that they should be telling the press about that, that they should be putting this information out there. That shouldn't be publicly known, again, if true. Uh, and it's really disconcerting to see that there are so many people uh, out there in government or formerly in government who believe that they are the arbiters of what is covered by federal law in terms of information and, and what is not. Uh, and the partisanship is obvious. I mean, the anti-Trump animus of many of these leaks, it couldn't be any more clear. So Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, said they're going to go after people. Uh, I, I wonder if they'll be able to find any of the really top-level leakers. But this has had an effect, by the way, on the way that the uh, government and the intelligence community interacts with the press. And now everyone is is freaked out, and there are all these concerns about exactly what I was saying to you, really, which is the people who aren't really trying to leak anything. You know, there, there, there are innocent, normal contacts that occur between some government agencies and the media. There are press offices. There are people that are supposed to be talking to the media um, and, and are authorized to do so. But even they're scared uh, because of all of the fury surrounding the leaks right now. So we got to keep an eye on this. Uh, it's obviously a concern when you've got national security being damaged. But there are different layers here, and we shouldn't just turn this into a partisan food fight. Uh, that We'll leave that to the other side. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break. I'll be back with much more. Stay with me. talk to you, so you're going to have to forgive me that when I press you on this. Um, you are a savvy guy. You are plugged in. You've been around Democratic politics a long time. You no doubt are having conversations behind the scenes. No doubt those conversations are being had probably every day. Who is the leader of the Democratic Party right now? 
Uh, I think uh, there are many leaders of the Democratic Party. I will always default. Give me a name, Governor. Say, give me a name. I'm not going to give you. I'll say the governors who are leading their states, creating jobs, building infrastructure, building an education system that works. We have to balance our budgets. Unlike Washington, they print money. They still can't balance a budget. We create jobs. We build infrastructure. We do education. Governors need to lead the way. And listen, I compliment the folks on Capitol Hill who are doing what they're doing. But, you know, we need some action out of Washington to help us compete on a global basis. So answer given by uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe there from uh, the question posed by or to the question posed by uh, MSNBC's Katie Tour, who has all of a sudden is now is now another one of these journalists that I'm supposed to listen to and pretend knows something. And I just want to know why. Um, but I know I won't get an answer to that question either. Uh, but McAuliffe, who, of course, gives the usual, you know, we're just going to make jobs. And uh, yeah, you know, like we're going to make the jobs and, you know, governors are balancing their budgets. And, you know, uh, it's just it's just pablum, right? It, it's claptrap. But I, I do think that the members of the Democrat media, Democrat establishment who are honest about this are increasingly facing a recognition that they are not uh, pushing for anything, really, other than Trump is evil, Trump is bad, the special counsel investigation with Mueller is is going to be the Democratic Party's salvation. Uh, There doesn't seem to be much else that they offer up. Um, They're they're not it's not clear to me if they want Obamacare to stay or to go. I, I think that there are arguments within the Democrat Party on both sides of whether the Republicans doing anything substantive to get rid of much of Obamacare would be a help or a hindrance to them come the midterm elections. So they're an opposition party. Democrats are an opposition party, to be sure. They want to stop Trump at every turn, but they also don't really seem to uh, stand for anything right now uh, that they're willing to at least make. I, I see now that's you cut that out of context. Book section says the Democrats don't stand for anything. I don't mean that, but I'm saying that there's no message. There's not they, they don't stand up publicly and promote anything in particular right now. And I, I think it's in, at least in part because they're just waiting for Republicans to fail and they hope they swoop in and pick up the pieces and then uh, go through the transfer of you know the, then benefit from the transfer of power that will result and and then they'll have big ideas and agenda but you know part of the problem with all this for the democrats is that we had eight years of obama and much of the the promise of the obama administration uh well the promises that were fulfilled did not turn out the way that we were told they would obamacare being uh perhaps the most notable example of this but also on immigration uh, Democrats can't be honest with the American people about what they really want when it comes to immigration. Democrats won't just say, we want amnesty and we want effectively unrestricted immigration from the developing world, from the third world, um, because they are more likely to vote for the party of state benefits and statism, and therefore it'll help Democrats. They won't say that openly, but that really is ideologically their position. They still have to pretend so that they can compete in states like Wisconsin and Michigan uh, and Colorado. And, you know, they still have to pretend that they believe in some controls at the border. They still have to go through the whole 
song and dance of, oh, yeah, border security. You know, we, we, we believe in that, too. Because if the Democrat Party, if the progressive wing, if the Nancy Pelosi wing of the Democrat Party were honest with the American people, they would never win another national election, ever. They, they have to uh, play this make-believe game uh, at election time in order to fool enough of those who are independents and undecideds to go Democrat that they can then have power uh, at the national level. And so this is the question that I think is going to continue to haunt the Democrat Party because they really only have a, a couple of options right now that have the name recognition and, yes, the celebrity star power that Democrats relied on so heavily in the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton, Oh, I'll be your champion. I'll be the next president. Just let me go for a third time. I mean, that's the, the Clinton brand is, I mean, hey, maybe we could like repeal that whole thing about, you know, you can only run twice and Bill can Bill be president twice rather. I mean, you know, he won two elections, maybe win a third. You know, so you get Hillary, you get Bill. The Clinton brand is not what it used to be. Uh, Hillary running a third time, I suppose, is possible, but I mean, come on. At that point, it just, it, it looks, it, it goes from being inevitable to desperate, right? It was inevitable the first time. The second time, in a sense, it seemed even more ne- inevitable because of the first time, I think at least to Democrats. But a third time would just be desperation, and it would be, wow, Hillary can't find anything else to do with her time. So the Clinton brand is damaged. You got the Obama brand, which is still very potent for Democrats, and, and certainly the, the media in Hollywood are incredibly uh, nostalgic for the Obama era. But again, Obama can't run for a third term. Not clear yet if Michelle Obama would make a run for Senate in Illinois. Uh, people are saying no. I don't think she could go straight to running for the presidency, but, but in this day and age, maybe. Uh, but so the, the there's the possibility of the Obama brand becoming the the still once again the standard bearer uh, the the main brand of the Democrat Party. Uh, but I think that because of the logistical problems with you can't have President Obama run a third time, they're not going to do that. And then you look at who else is out there and who they need to uh, win in competitive states in the both in the midterms and then in the next presidential election. And, you know, what, you got you got Terry McAuliffe. I mean, is, is that really supposed to be uh, is that really supposed to be the answer to this question? And what, so, you know, there's there's a, a personality deficit uh, in the Democrat Party right now. And there's also, I think, an idea deficit because, you know, the, the stuff that they push for climate change, transgender rights, the areas of policy that the Democrats and their and the progressives in the media are the most energized about, and the stuff that gets all the attention in the blogs and in the in the media ecosystem, most Americans just don't really care all that much. Despite how much the Democrat Party wants them to care, uh, they they can't bring themselves to care because it doesn't really affect their lives all that much. And in fact, the only reason we even talk about it is because Democrats are always trying to jam this stuff, and the Democrat media is always trying to jam this stuff down our throats. And uh, what we saw with Trump is that talking about uh, talking about American greatness and jobs and a strong economy and a strong America and a country that is, is looking out for its own and that privileges citizens above uh, 
foreigners and you know that's that resonates and that's how you have somebody who's never held elected office defeating the quote inevitable candidate with Hillary Clinton Democrats still have not learned the core lessons of the last election I don't know if they will or not they're just hoping that the ground shifts so much under the Trump administration that they don't need a cohesive message but it was never clear why Hillary including to Hillary herself it was never clear why she was running for president and right now I think the Democrat Party needs to ask the question, what if anti-Trump hysteria is not enough? What if the American people want more? Who's going to make that case to them? Who's going to lead the Democratic Party with something other than Trump is the worst? Because he's not, so it's not going to work. We've got more team. We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. And say you think it was Russia. Your intelligence agencies have been far more definitive. They say it was Russia. Why won't you agree with them well, and say it I'll was? Well, I'll tell you, let me just start off by saying I heard it was 17 agencies. I said, boy, that's a lot. Do we even have that many intelligence agencies, right? Let's check it. And we did some very heavy research. It turned out to be three or four. It wasn't 17. And many of your compatriots had to change their reporting and they had to apologize and they had to correct. President Trump there yesterday at a press conference with the Polish premier uh, taking questions from the press and Trump saying quite rightly that, in fact, the line about 17 agencies was fake news and that this is something that people should just understand now and not continue to push because it starts to feel like the press is just going along with a propaganda line, which, of course, is what has been happening here. Uh, And it comes after, I mean, President Trump says this, after uh, last week, the New York Times put up the following correction uh, to a story. A White House memo article on Monday about President Trump's deflections and denials about Russia referred incorrectly to the source of an intelligence assessment that said Russia orchestrated hacking attacks during last year's presidential election. The assessment was made by four intelligence agencies, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the National Security Agency. The assessment was not approved by all 17 organizations in the American intelligence community. Uh, This has not been something that just came out of nowhere. News organizations have been running with this for months. In fact, it's not even just the the press that has been peddling this uh, falsehood. The Russian government has engaged in espionage against Americans. They have hacked American uh, websites, American accounts of private people, of institutions. Then they have given that information to WikiLeaks for the purpose of putting it on the Internet. This has come from the highest levels of the Russian government, clearly from Putin himself, in an effort, as 17 of our intelligence agencies have confirmed, to influence our election. So I actually think the most important question of this evening, Chris, is finally, will Donald Trump admit and condemn that the Russians are doing this and make it clear that he will not have the help of Putin in this? I mean, as you can see, 
it's quite clear that this was a data point or this was a, a fake a fake news data point that was used continuously by the left has been used to make it seem like there was an overwhelming uh, consensus among, I mean, what, like the Coast Guard, too? I mean, everybody was in on this, apparently. All 17 intel agencies uh, to make it seem like it was such an ironclad assessment that there could be no deviation from it whatsoever and that Trump was some kind of denialist about uh, the Russian hacking uh, because the 17 intel agencies had all come to this definitive, 100% clear conclusion about it. Now, uh, the the Russia hack has all, has in some ways mirrored uh, the climate change debate in that they try to intentionally, the left tries to intentionally oversimplify how uh, how this is discussed so that you're forced to make statements that are more sweeping than you intend and, and this is all because of the control of the argument, the debate that they want to have. Let, let me let me break down for you what I mean. I know I'm kind of uh, running around into a bunch of different uh, points here. For example, they will say, well, Mr. President, don't you believe that Russia hacked the election? W- what does that even mean? We've talked about this before. Hacked the election? Does that mean hacking into the voting machines? Does that mean changing votes? Does that mean changing the outcome? Because if it's any of those things, then that's a conspiracy without any evidence. That's a lie. That's not true. That's fake news. Uh, Is it that it is an assessment of the intelligence community and some aspects of the intelligence community? And really, as somebody who used to work for the intelligence community, you're talking about a group of analysts from within that much larger community making this assessment who have made uh, you know, in general, I'm talking not these not these individuals necessarily, but the intelligence community has made mistakes in the past. This is not news to anyone, uh, and they're not entirely definitive, nor could they be, about the full uh, scope of who is involved here, what the uh, what the outcome effect was or was not. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty in intelligence analysis just as a matter of course that's that's reality Uh, but by saying it's all 17 agencies they're overstating the case this is similar so so they ask do you believe russia hacked the election it's like asking do you believe in climate change because they force you to give a very simple answer to a much more complicated question if you say well yeah i believe in climate change uh, but i think that climate change has been occurring naturally for centuries and in fact millennia Uh, In fact, as long as the planet's been around uh, and that human activity is almost certainly a very small part of it. And even if that were not the case, the costs of trying to offset the human activity and role in climate change are not worth it uh, for the the benefits are outweighed dramatically by the cost. But they don't let you get to that part of the discussion. Just do you believe in climate change? If yes, then all of these things must follow. Do you believe Russia hacked the election? Uh, if yes, then of course it's uh, uh, the president's illegitimate. This is all uh, nonsense. It's it's fake. What happened, or rather, it's um, unjust. What happened, and they they do that. And the seventeen agencies line, seventeen agencies agree, was used as a means of trying to uh, browbeat people, including President Trump himself into making that more sweeping statement. 
So it's not for nothing that the 17 agencies uh, line, which which has become reflexive. I mean, you still have you had just I think yesterday, Katie Turr, one of the new up and coming uh, newsreaders over at NBC, uh, repeated this line on Twitter. People will just keep saying this. And of course, that that factors into our assessment of fake news and how much fake news is out there, as it well should. But keep in mind that I, I played that Clinton audio for you and the fact checking websites out there said that, yeah, she's telling the truth. They said that, that she's right. USA Today headline. Yes, 17 intelligence agencies really did say Russia was behind hacking. PolitiFact gave Clinton a true rating for what she said. What she said was completely False, inaccurate, untrue. I mean, I give the Washington Post some credit for uh, taking some shots here at its rival, the New York Times. Uh, well, now that, of course, the truth is out and no one can hide from it. You've got Eric Wemple writing for the Washington Post website uh, at the end of a piece where he breaks down what a just a, a continuous uh, you know, zombie lie, the 17 agencies line became. You, you just couldn't get rid of this line. Uh, he writes, whatever your take on fact checks, the media laundered and recyc- recycled a Clinton talking point without too much exploration of the intricacies through which the intelligence community reaches its conclusions. Uh, so, yeah, th- this was obviously nonsense. 17 agencies weighing in on this? This was a very sensitive matter. I mean, do people realize the DEA and you know the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Coast Guard are part of that 17 number. I mean, so so yeah, they they really you know when I want to know what's going on with uh, Russian cyber hacking in a national election, I turn right to the experts of the Coast Guard. Again, Coast Guard, thanks for all you do, but this is probably not an area where I would think the Coast Guard would particularly weigh in. Uh, but why repeat the 17 number? I, I should note that now the New York Times, of course, is writing that. Trump is misleading people by suggesting that because 17 didn't agree, because only four agreed, and those four are very important agencies, which is true, uh, that somehow that Trump is the one guilty of dishonesty. But okay, no, no, no. That is a form of whataboutism. That is a form of uh, distraction from the facts at hand, because if the number is not 17, people should not be saying it's 17. If Hillary Clinton in a presidential debate claims that it was 17 because she was trying to stack the deck even further against Trump and his line of analysis and his thoughts on this, that's dishonest. That's wrong. For fact-checking websites to pretend that it was not dishonest and wrong just goes to the overall feeling that Americans have that the press cannot be trusted. Okay, And this is a very clear example of that and that after the fact they're trying to tell us well you know it was it was kind of true in substance no you don't get to name 17 agencies when it's actually four and say that's accurate that's not how this works media uh and to say that because the four had quote as the washington or the new york times writes here high confidence in the assessment like i was telling you this is an assessment made by a number of people within those agencies who are just working with the information at hand, and intelligence work is uh, inherently imperfect. And I'm not, I'm not saying, Trump is saying, by the way, that Russia tried to meddle. He's, he's not disagreeing with that. He's just saying it's not the full extent, and if anyone else was involved, then there are some other questions out there about it. But the real 
important fact here, everybody, is that it was not 17 agencies, that the media ran with that for months, that it's become a knee-jerk reflex for them to say 17 intelligence agencies, 17 intelligence agencies. It's just not true. And to pretend that somehow that lack of accuracy is meaningless in a discussion about the Trump administration's willingness to come to grip with facts is just so disingenuous, right? Okay, well, Trump has to be accurate on the numbers, but the media don't, because if they're right in substance, somehow that's fine. It's just nonsense. And of course, they let Hillary completely get away with saying this, and all it would have taken would be a quick cursory search of speeches given by senior former administration officials before Congress, and it would have been known that it wasn't 17 agencies. But you see, the lie was useful, It was useful at the time. They ran with it. They didn't correct it. They didn't care. And now that they're caught, you know what? I think it's very hard for any American to come to a conclusion other than if they could have, they would have done this whole thing again because it's all about the cause. It's all about hashtag resistance. This media is not about facts. It's not about accuracy. It is not about truth. Whenever any of those things get in the way of the agenda. Hit a quick break here. We'll be back with much more Team Stay With Me. Illegal immigrants are treated better in many cases than our vets, and it's not going to happen anymore. Not going to happen anymore. That was Donald Trump on the uh, campaign trail a while back saying that, well, illegal immigrants do get a special treatment from Democrats and that there are really privileges that come along with being an illegal in this country. Uh, You violate the law and then you are in a protected, at least as far as Democrats are concerned. And yes, unfortunately, far too many Republicans, you are in a protected and special class. In fact, I've discussed this many times before on air. Illegals aren't just breaking the law by their presence in the country. It is usually the case that in addition to the illegality of their status, uh, they also commit a whole variety of other crimes, most notably document fraud, uh, lying on government forms, using and possessing false identification. These are all crimes that U.S. citizens get in trouble for. But with illegals, it's just considered uh, part of the situation that they find themselves in, as though a choice has not been made to be in the country illegally. Uh, But to that notion about whether illegals are treated better than uh, veterans, he's referring, of course, to the the VA and the uh, severe shortcomings of the Veterans Administration when it comes to taking care of our vets with health care. I would just want to point to an article in The Wall Street Journal that compares the treatment of illegals to just U.S. citizens in general, including vets, including everybody, just U.S. citizens. And this should tell us a lot uh, about the way that the Democrat Party, with its uh, identity politics above almost all else, uh, will conduct itself if back in power. Here's the piece. Some prosecutors offer plea deals to avoid deportation of non-citizens. What's happening here is that illegals who commit crimes for which they could be prosecuted uh, find themselves uh, prosecuted and, and deported because of the crime 
are being given in cases. Uh, we're not sure how many yet. There are certainly uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of these in major jurisdictions occurring each year, based on what I see in the piece. But an illegal who commits a crime like, say, possession of, as is mentioned in this piece, crack cocaine, uh, may plead just to trespassing instead. And now, look, I'm, I'm in favor of mercy in the justice system. I'm in favor particularly of second chances for first-time offenders. I think there are far too many crimes on the books. I think that prosecution is often overzealous in this country and that lives now, because of the uh, Google and instantaneous information era in which we live, getting sent to prison for anything is for your career, uh, for your life prospects, uh, something of a, of a death sentence uh, for your career. I mean, it, you cannot get a job afterwards. It's very hard, and this follows you around for life. And especially for nonviolent criminals, I think the penalties are often uh, far too severe. And, and the implications of the penalties are far too severe. So with all of that in mind, uh, I just wanted to spend a few minutes getting into what's going on here with prosecutors' offices. Remember, prosecutors have a tremendous amount of authority. They have a lot of ability to destroy people if they choose to do so. And so when we see prosecutors that are making decisions that privileges illegal Immigrants. Uh, they, are, they are giving illegal immigrants a pass because of their illegality over what they would give U.S. citizens. We've got a major problem here. Uh, it is unethical, and it shows the politicization of prosecutors' offices, which is one of the areas that should most concern all of us. Once we cannot trust the justice system, we cannot trust the government, period. Full stop. There's no way around this. And when you see what's happening with some of these cases in particularly major cities where there's a large illegal immigrant population and therefore the politics around illegal immigration are increasingly uh, one-sided, meaning that the, the Democrat strongholds of the major cities that have large illegal immigrant populations, uh, there is now no voice even of resistance to pushing for greater leniency, for legalization, for more rights, for more benefits, for illegals. Uh, and now this is even extending, based on this Wall Street Journal piece, and it just also makes sense when you think about the politics around it, into prosecutors' offices. So if a normal U.S. citizen is uh, caught with drugs and is going to have to face the, the drug penalty, they may have to just plead to a drug crime but because drug crimes could be a deportable offense, somebody who is an illegal and has committed multiple crimes, let's say trespassing and drug possession, like crack cocaine, uh, they may just get the trespassing charge, no drug charge whatsoever, not even a lesser drug charge for the plea uh, agreement. And that then raises questions as to whether or not people who are illegals are getting special treatment over those who are in the country legally. Once our government starts treating non-citizens better than citizens, and not just non-citizens, people who are in the country in violation of our laws, as though that's a, a privileged and special class that needs uh, protection, I suppose protection from our own justice system, uh, we should all be asking some uh, very uh, stern questions about just what the heck is going on in this country, and particularly with the Democrat Party. 
if if you can now claim that your illegality is some extenuating circumstance that being an illegal alien in this country entitles you to a be- to better treatment in the criminal justice system than uh, somebody who's in the country legally than a U.S. citizen because prosecutors have politicized this process and decided that deportation is mean, unjust, inhumane, whatever the case may be, uh, we have a perversion of our justice system. We have a disgrace that is being uh, perpetrated by those entrusted with tremendous state power, and we need to keep an eye on this. This has to stop. Illegals should not be treated better, certainly than veterans. Illegals should not be treated better than citizens, than people who obey our laws. Uh, Let's go into a quick break here, team. I've got a lot more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Hey, everybody, we're going to switch it up now for a second. We are joined by my friend Jimmy Fela. He is a New York City cab driver turned professional stand-up comic, and he's radio host of Off the Meter with Jimmy Fela, and occasionally we get to hang out over at Fox News. Mr. Jimmy Fela, great to have you on the program. Buck Sexton, we're getting the band back together. We, Look at that. We are indeed. Man. My, my favorite guy to hang out with in the green room at Fox is now hanging out with me in the Freedom Hut. There's synergy here. I love it. People think the green room at Fox is like a really happening place. It's just a bunch of people eating cheese. Yeah, but and, that, uh, com- that, yeah. that cheese has been out there for a while. Yo, there's a, there are, there's a couple of pieces of cheese in the Studio D green room that voted for Carter. <laughs> wow, that's that's where that blue fuzz comes from. I thought it was just a French thing. All right, so uh, talk to me a bit, Jimmy, about what you see happening in the media now. It's, it's Isn't it amazing? It is the, the ultimate self-licking ice cream cone. We've got the media just reporting on how people are treating the media. Wow, isn't that amazing? CNN is like doing this whole woe is me routine. <laughs> They're in a weird spot, man, because they, they're officially now like we're watching an implosion right now it's become this different thing like it was that you've kind of articulated it well in the beginning it was a war on trump but now they don't realize that it has become a war on themselves like there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds like did you see lost in all of this meme gate with them blackmailing the guy who posted the you know the trump beatdown video did you see the abe lincoln quotes yesterday oh i talked about them yeah abe lincoln and i and also uh, benjamin franklin wrong quotes from cnn <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing. It's bad if I'm catching it because I went to community college, so I'm supposed to be sign- like I'm supposed to be the one making those quotes, not the editorial board at actual CNN. I was going to send some of my buddies over there an email saying it's like my man George Washington said: "Don't believe every quote you read on the internet." <laughs> By the way, you know who's really uh, benefiting from this too, though, is MSNBC. Because they've done some things in the shadow of CNN. Like Joy Reid had a tweet on the 4th of July, AM Joy, uh, saying that today we celebrate our independence from George III, who committed unconstitutional acts against our country. And uh, I was like, I, the last I checked, the Constitution didn't happen until after the revolution. 
But I don't think anybody's keeping score, like, on that side. Like, nobody's holding them accountable, you know? Well, you know, unconstitutional and, uh, on the left has just meant recently whatever Trump does. <laughs> so that's yeah, like if we it's don't a very broad term. It's kind of like fascism in the 80s. You just, anything you didn't like, you called fascist if you were in Europe or some people in this country. Uh, but but now, yeah, you just say it's unconstitutional. And you're like, but what, but, you know, even if we're talking about what's going on with a foreigner in some other country, people are like, oh, you see what's going on? It, it's so unconstitutional what they're doing to his free speech rights in Cambodia or whatever. And you're like, well, I'm not sure they have the Constitution over there. Yeah, that's not really a big thing. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really wild time to be alive, I guess is what we're trying to say, Buck Sexton, is that uh, some wild stuff going on. Yeah, well, t- 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 what do you, when do you think they figure this out? I mean, I saw today Chris Saliza, who has a half a million Twitter followers, uh, he 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 did this whole thing about how the the premier of Poland's wife reached out to and, and Trump kind of made the oh. hand gesture to you know, shake her hand and she yeah. went but the but the the first lady of Poland basically reaches out to the first lady of the United States Melania uh-huh. uh, yeah. and they between the two of them they probably could converse in in fifteen different languages and and they re, and, and Trump gets a handshake after her it was just a very I mean you know it it, it was such a nothing that I, I don't know how anyone yeah. and Chris Saliza this guy he's got a Twitter following a half a million, big media reporter over at CNN, whatever yeah. that means. He writes, ah, ha, ha, in giant capital letters and puts this out there for the whole world to see. And it's like, well, like, what is this? Are, are you are you okay. just clowning yourself because you want attention? I don't understand. That's a lot of it, because that's what Jim Acosta is doing, too, is he's just trying to contest every word out of their mouths because it elevates his profile if he gets dragged into a scrum. I mean, that's a lot of what this is. Like, they have to be aware. Like, I watched the handshake today because it got circulated, as you said, like the snub of the century. Polish uh, Polish first lady shuts down Trump or, you know how they like to say with Samantha B. Samantha B. totally destroys Donald Trump. The only thing Samantha B. has ever totally destroyed is my will to watch television. I was going to say, but, the, uh, the ratings of TBS, I think, so. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's another destruction right there. But, yeah, the actual, that actual handshake, if we were having a fair assessment of it, it was, it's what I call a pick six. Have you ever gone to shake somebody's hand and somebody else steps in and shakes their hand and like runs it back for a touchdown like you would in an NFL game? That's what that was. She was just turning to shake Melania's hand first. She did come back to him, but it's reported in such a breathless fashion because I think what happened, Buck, is people don't have a gear. Like they don't know how to cover Trump with any nuance. And what I'm amazed at, and this goes back to the election, uh, the election cycle, is he makes a lot of unforced errors, obviously, um, and they'd look so much more credible if they just stuck to those errors in the in the areas where they really had him on something, as opposed to creating issues where there aren't any. Because if you look at the polls now, you can see that more people actually trust him than the media. Did you see that NPR poll that came out two days ago? No, but I, I believe it because at this point, why would you believe at, at this point? Believing the media is a leap of faith that I think people who spend enough time reading and watching and listening to media would not make. No. Yeah. No, no. Like, let's be fair. Like it said, like 20 percent of the people in the poll trusted the media. And of that 20 percent, none of them work in media. 
<laughs> nobody, nobody actually works in the media. It was like, yeah, we trust the media. More but, yeah, I, I see people yeah. at the New York Times and these other places. They'll suggest, you know, a vast majority of our reporting is accurate. And I kind of want to want to have this discussion with them, or or maybe debate this publicly. Well, yeah, of course. In, in the internet era, you don't want to yeah. be the major newspaper that's just getting names and dates and 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 the most basic, straightforward facts wrong. But when people yeah. say they don't trust the media, they're not saying that they think that everything that the media writes is just false and a lie. But that there is an agenda, that the editorial decisions are partisan and politicized, and that they do things that are unethical while chasing that political agenda. That's where the lack of trust comes from. I always find it funny. People say, oh, a vast majority of our reporting is accurate. Well, congratulations. I mean. What what kind of standard is that, though? That's like if you get pulled over by a cop and you're like, yeah, the vast majority of my drive home has been pretty darn good, sir. Uh, other, Other than these three lawn ornaments that are under my front tires. Six beer cans that just fell out the window. The vast majority. Yeah, and I, I wish that the that that they would recognize that when they're when their sunburned stomach belly flop in the shallow end of the pool mistakes are all with regard to Trump. People yeah. notice that, and there's a reason that they're making mistakes in that one area. Well, yeah, that is that's that's the agenda revealing itself, and that's what I was kind of saying in that point earlier. Is that if they picked their battles with him they wouldn't have exposed themselves. But yes, we're definitely at a point where people recognize Trump is getting treated differently than a normal president. Like, and if you were to compare it to Obama, I mean, it's farcical. Like a Jim Acosta question to Obama would have been like, what's the hardest part about being so awesome? You know what I mean? That would be that that would be like a lead. That would be like a dagger. Like Barack would be like, "Whoa, I didn't know you." Yeah, gonna... we all remember the Chris Matthews throw up the leg line. I mean, no one's forgotten this. You know, I, I I've said this before. I just think that the media hasn't yet acclimated to a world in which we don't need their fact checkers. We can just check the facts ourselves with the Google. It's not that hard. Yeah, that's the big problem they're running into now. And they're at a point, and this is where it really will get interesting. Like and I, I was alluding to this earlier, that CNN is kind of imploding because they, they can't come to grips with the fact that they couldn't stop him. And they didn't want to accept that they couldn't stop him post-election. So they sold you know, their base a lot of elixirs. Like I, I describe the, the state of politics in the country now is like the Democrats on the left have a terminally ill patient. And the people at the top of that keep selling them these fake faith-healing elixirs. First, they were going to pressure the Electoral College. Then we had that Jill Stein recount going. Do you remember that farce for a little while? Then we were running this Russian racket. Now we're down to the 25th Amendment. That's the latest, you know, that's the latest faith-healing maneuver they're, you know, they're pushing on their people, is that we're going to remove him because he's old and he's unfit for office. And then what are we going to do? We're going to run Biden, who will be 78, Bernie, who's in his late hundreds, and uh, Hillary, who I, she, I, I think she's running again. I don't think she's not. Yeah, I'm not running. sure she's done. I'm not sure she's gotten the message. I, I, I think that she still thinks we're ready for Hillary. But, Jimmy, before I let you go, tell everybody about your special on Amazon Prime. Oh, wow. Yeah, my, uh, my one-hour special, State of the Union. It's uh, streaming on Amazon Prime. Um, and if you guys go check it out, I don't mean to brag, Buck Sexton, but I get like a 10-cent royalty. Every one of you people that watch it, I think the Amazon deals, you get, you know, it's like a book. You get an advance and a royalty. So take the apron off, Jenny Fela. We're going out well, tonight. Well, I'm, I'm throwing, a, I'm throwing a, dime, a dime in the hat for you, my friend. So uh, I'll check it out <laughs> myself. Jimmy Fela, everybody, radio host of Off the Meter with Jimmy Fela. Mr. Jimmy, great to have you on, sir. 
Rock and roll, man. I'll, I'll see you in the uh, Studio D, buddy. I'll Absolutely. See you, see you over at Fox. And, uh, team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, a special treat for you now. I'm joined by my friend Kamal Ravikant. He was a U.S. Army infantry soldier. He climbed in the Himalayas. He has spoken to audience around the globe. He walked 550 miles across Spain, meditated with Tibetan monks, worked with some of the best people in Silicon Valley, and he's also a best-selling author. His first book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It, became a smash success. And he's got a new book out that we want to talk to him about. It's called Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart, which is available now on Amazon. Kamal, great to have you, sir. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Buck. And and nice and rebirth right now. There's a special on Amazon for it, right? So give me give there, me a sense of uh, what the book's all about. Yeah, the special is actually two ninety nine for the Kindle, which is normally thirteen ninety nine. The Amazon picked it as it's one of its top deals for July, which is quite an honor. And the book is actually about you know a lot of the things I learned in life and uh, a lot of the life lessons I write about were written in the story. So that, you know, so I weave in these life lessons about forgiveness and love and letting go moving forward with your life into a story that that I've lived and I based the book on. And uh, it seems to be doing really well and, and serving its purpose of what I set out to do. Tell us a bit about you, by the way. I mean, you've had quite a life, Kamal. And uh, Kamal and I just started yeah. listening are, are, are good friends. And so I, I know... Uh, quite a bit of his backstory, but those listening don't. Uh, you were in the you were in the army. What was that? What were some of the lessons you? You're, you're a guy who shares your life philosophy and life lessons. What were some of the takeaways you had from your time in the army? Actually, the, one of the best lessons I ever learned was when I was 18, and I was uh, shipped off to Fort Benning, you know, for boot camp, for infantry boot camp. And when you go there, it's the home of the infantry, and there's a very famous statue there of uh, the home of an infantry soldier. It's a World War II infantry soldier, and he looks like he's charging a position, but he's got his arm out, and the motto is, follow me. And that, you know, like in Silicon Valley, I built companies out there, now I run a fund that invests in companies, and, you know, any from, like, small companies to billion-dollar companies. And when I talk to people about leadership, it's literally that motto, follow me. And that, that's what I did, like, uh, when I built companies, and I got known as a guy who could just get, like, the very best people. People ask me how. Like, I live that. You're like, you, you go to sleep after your men, you wake up before your men, you eat after your men, you take care of them. I mean, when I say men, I mean the whole thing, men and women. But, you know, I was an infantry soldier, so it was only men. Uh, you just take care of your team better than you take care of yourself, and you lead by example. That was such a great lesson in leadership. And I learned that at 18 years old, man, that one statue. And Kamal is like the American dream, everybody. He is a, a, an immigrant, an Army soldier, an entrepreneur, an author. Uh, you're, you're, hitting, you're hitting things all over the place here on the list, Kamal. Um, <laughs> tell me about the... Uh, the 550-mile walk across Spain, which I know is is talked about or written about in your book, Rebirth. Yeah, it's an ancient, ancient uh, Catholic uh, Christian pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago that people have been walking since the 11th century. Kings and paupers, like millions and millions of people have walked it. And I ended up walking it after my dad died when I was 25, and it was a transformative experience walking to a country where I didn't speak the language, and just walking, following the footprints of all these people before me who just followed their faith and went somewhere. And a lot of them died along the way, unlike modern pilgrims. And it, it changed my life. And so I wrote this story based on that. And, you know, still I think about 100,000, 200,000 people walk it every year in modern time. And it goes from north, northeast Spain all the way to the end of northwest Spain. 
Um, and what, what does one do during a five a five hundred and fifty mile stroll? Well, it's a bit of a. Yeah. It's like you get up and you walk west. You just get up every day. You walk to vineyards. You go out to wheat fields. You walk through cities and you meet people along the way and you share with each other stories of your lives and you change and you grow together then your pace change and they leave you behind and you leave them behind and you continue walking meet others it's the perfect metaphor for life and by the time you're done it took me about 32 days but in those 32 days it was kind of like boot camp you know the guy who started was not the guy who ended you are different you've grown you're a better version of yourself we're speaking to Kamal Ravikant. He is an Army veteran and also an entrepreneur and author. His latest book is Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. Uh, Kamal, uh, to touch on the Silicon Valley piece for, for a moment here, what are some uh, of the most exciting things that are happening in that world of uh, that incredibly high-tech uh, and fast-paced world of, of, uh, of technology? Right now, the best, the biggest opportunity we're seeing is actually, you know, people have heard of things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and that is the biggest opportunity we're seeing. And it's not necessarily Bitcoin, but it's the technology behind it, you know, which is called a blockchain. And basically, all the smartest people I know in the Valley, you know, and haven't been to a dot-com boom myself, and I was there doing Silicon Valley then, this is like being in the mid-90s when the browser came out. And like what's getting built and how that's going to transform everything, that's what's happening now. So that is the biggest, most exciting, Wild West, craziest, craziest. In the beginning, it's always Wild West. And then, what the are some of the transformational has... technologies? And for, for people listening who are all across the country, Kamal, uh, what are the things that are uh, going to change in their day-to-day lives in the next few years based on what you're seeing? Because you're a guy with very high-level contacts out in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I would say contracts, smart contracts to begin with, uh, legal contracts, business-to-business uh, -business contracts, transfer of... Um, funds from country to country if you're doing business with a country you know where it's like difficult to move currency you don't want to do a visa using these networks to just move money easily seamlessly uh that's going to be one very good use case of just moving money across borders legally but very very easily way easier than using your bank or visa that's coming um beyond that longer term is contracts any anything that requires a contract right now some legal party sitting in the middle signing and keeping track of it, you can actually do in a mathematical way that cannot be uh, forged. That's the main thing. It can't be forged. And so that's nothing coming, but I don't think it'll affect the average person for a while. It'll be more businesses. So the average thing, right, uh, I would say coming is just movement of currency. And also, you know, uh, in some ways, you know, when, when um, economies fall or like a recession happens, you know, things like gold go up higher. So Certain cryptocurrencies that people, they're almost kind of becoming like gold, like digital gold. Those will go up significantly. So one thing I see people doing is, you know, speculating and buying these kind of cryptocurrencies for the next recession. So then they'll shoot up and they'll make a lot of money. Kamal Ravikant is the author of Rebirth, A Fable of Love, Forgiveness, and Following Your Heart. Uh, check it out on Amazon. It is chosen as one of the Amazon Books of the Month. He's also the author, by the way, of Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It, which you can also get on Amazon. Uh, Kamal, my friend, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor. Thank you, Buck. Uh, team, uh, it is an honor to have you listening. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show, as always. Uh, if you haven't already, please do download the podcast. You can go on iTunes to do that. Type in Buck Sexton with America Now. Also, follow me on Facebook. Go to uh, facebook.com 
slash Buck Sexton. It's a way to communicate with uh, everyone else who is uh, Team Buck. They'll be posting there, and uh, it's a way for us to uh, keep in touch throughout uh, the week and, and even on the weekends. So have a great weekend. Looking forward to seeing you next week. And until then, my friends, Shields High.